Hey, I want to invite you guys, if you've been listening to this podcast and enjoying this content and are passionate about protection, you should know that we have an entire library of all of the protector symposiums that we've ever done uh, hosted at protectornation.com. You can go there and you can download those and you can watch every protector symposium we've had to date there online and you can learn protection tactics from the most, some of the most elite trainers in the world from the comfort of your own home. I think you'll be surprised about how much content we actually have there. Uh, It's very, very, very reasonably priced and you can upgrade your protection skills. Remember, protection is not all about the hard skills. 90% of it is all about the software, the programming, the way you see and move in the world to achieve a safer pattern of life. With that having been said, go to protectornation.com, join us there, learn from the best of the best. Now, enjoy the show. Boom, hello and welcome to the Protector Nation podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to making the world a better place, making the world a safer place by making good people dangerous. In this podcast, we're going to study and understand what it takes to protect, to protect your family, to protect your loved ones, because we all know that you have a few basic needs, food, water, and shelter, but you also have the need to protect those things. In a world and society where evil runs rampant and is sometimes left unchecked, learning how to protect yourselves and your loved ones is becoming more and more important. And so we strive to raise the level of accountability to those who would do evil on this planet by making sure that the sheep, that the flock, is more well-versed in protecting themselves and their loved ones. If that sounds interesting to you, then sit back and enjoy the show. Out. Boom, what's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode. This one's probably going on both podcasts because it's that good. I've got Dean Stott here in the house, man. How you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, appreciate having me on. Yeah, brother. It's an honor, man. You've I mean, you've done so much. I'm over here like Googling you. I mean, I remember first meeting you at the Close Protection Conference at the EP Forum. We had that big party in that penthouse yes. and uh, seeing you up there and you were speaking and doing all kinds of awesome things, man. And it was an honor then. We hung out. You're a cool dude. And we've been meaning to do this for like a year. And here we are, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and likewise, you know, I'm working, as you know, with some brands and uh, obviously everyone knows I was still in the security sector and they're like, your name comes up all the time. And I was like, yeah, I actually know who he is now and I've met him. So yeah, it's good to finally get this going. No, it's good to hear that for sure, man. Same circles, you know, same circles for sure. Um, So yeah, dude, I Google you, you know, after we talk and you got pictures up here with Prince Harry, you know, you're hanging out with Jocko. I was like, dude, I got to get this guy on my podcast where he's too famous, (laughs) (laughs) you know? No, not at all. Nah, man, but you're a down, you're a humble, down to earth guy too. Which always, that's always, you know, those are always the realest guys, man. The guys that aren't hiding behind what they've done, that are just like, <laughs> will look you in the eyes, shake your hand, and and be at your service if you need them, you know. So I appreciate that about you. No, 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 I appreciate it. Yeah, um, and I thank you for the comment. It is, it's one of the, you know, one of the ethoses of our UK special forces. One of them is humility. Um, and it is because you just never know who you're chatting to, you know, who they are and what they know and and the circles that they are in, you know what I mean? So like I said, you know, I rub shoulders with, with royalty, but, you know, I think one of the things my wife says to me is, um, one of my USPs is I will I can talk to anyone, whether you're a, a young lad on the streets in Mogadishu or you, whether you are a member of the royal family. There's, I don't 
treat you any differently. You get treated yeah. exactly the same for me. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's important as well for a lot of people. 100%. It's ridiculously important, man. Um, and with the kind of different types of humans that we get to spend time with, you know, one day, yeah, you are speaking with royalty. The next day you are speaking to some guy you're meeting off the street in some other country who, you know, could be the local sheik's son or someone that could literally yeah. decide if you live or die while you're out there, you know, <laughs> walking around on patrol or whatever you're getting into. Yeah. Or could or if you're an EP, it could be that person that can get a get a door open for you and give you that access that you need. You know? Yeah. And and as you touched on there, to be successfully an EP and security and to continue in that, you know, it's not about what their people someone made a good comment to me. It's not about what people say in front of you, it's what they're saying when you're not there. And, and that's it. That's important as well is, you know, first impressions last, you know, everything you do is a reflection on you. And as you touched on EP, you know, when you're representing some of these high profile clients, you're almost a reflection on them as well. So the way that you act will reflect, you know, on them and the way they're being perceived as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's something that's some people struggle with, but for me, it seems, seems quite natural. hundred percent. No. And <clears throat> so yeah, you got the social dynamics, you're a genuine guy. And then, I mean, of course, it's the part for you that's painful, but I got to talk about like who you are and how cool you are for a minute. So the listeners know you've broken two world records. You were British Special Forces, SBS, you're doing some consulting in the private security realm. You know, you might be running around on TV, you got a book that you're dropping, you've been... Um, the type of warrior who's made some awesome contributions at some pretty high levels. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of that momentum and steam, you're supporting a nonprofit with some of the, some of the proceeds from your book and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Real quick. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the proceeds in the book, we go into the, uh, the honor foundation, uh, which is us based and they, they basically help the transition for special forces operators going into the civilian sector. And I can sort of, relate to that myself you know and and as, as you when you left left the marine corps you know you i i unfortunately left because i had a parachute accident i didn't want to leave you know i was what would know, as a lifer i did 16 years up until that point i joined at age of 17 and so after the parachuting injury i found myself you know quickly going into the civilian sector, which was obviously the private security sector. Yeah. But for me, it was a, a real identity crisis. You know, you know, I knew when I was in the military, I was working alongside like-minded individuals that had the same drive, the same passion, and the sort of same goals to, and knowing what I was doing for the next two years, it was all planned out to, you know, where do I now fit in society? What is my role? What, where do my yeah. skill sets, um, and how can I, how can I, Sir. contribute to society still um but also to add to the pressure as well my wife was eight months pregnant as well so i was worried that there was any work out there and and things like that so that identity crisis that sort of that transition from the military to civilian is, is quite alien i i never i never feel like you fully transition i think we're always still transitioning yeah. once you're in the military you're always in the military and so yeah. So the Honor Foundation sort of really resonated with me on that and is being able to sort of help those. Because what you do when you're in the military and you see people being successful in the outside world and they say, well, I can't do that because I don't have a degree or I don't have that. You know, actually, you underestimate what skill sets you already have from your time in the military. Yep. And it's just really sort of giving them that confidence, letting them know um, that they are already probably 
steps ahead of some of their peers yeah. uh, and actually isn't as ailing as, as you think it is. Um, and then hopefully their transition will be smoother. So yeah, so $5 for every book that we sell will go towards the Honor Foundation. That is super dope to use a scientific term, man. I love that. <laughs> and you touched on it. I mean, you said it beautifully. Um, I think, you know, it's all about finding that new fight, man. It's all about recognizing what we have in these engines that we've built that we can translate over into a new battlefield, man. And, and, and guys that don't do that, that engine can eat them alive, you know? And, um, that is, that is the new war, you know? And I think it's even a little bit more sophisticated because nothing will bring you closer to destruction than comfort, man. You know, that thing inside you can eat you alive if you don't put it to good use. Um, that's awesome, dude. That's something I'm pretty passionate about. Wrote a book yeah. about topic too. Yeah, because I think I think you know for me it, it was it was like you know what is it we can do out there? I talk about some of the skill sets, you know, and we'll go into the security. You know, without sounding like Liam Neeson, people with our particular skill sets would naturally go into the security industry. But that yeah. isn't for, that isn't for everyone who leaves the military. It's just right. It's, it's everything, and you know, I, I went to I, I had to um, I ran security for an event for the UK trade investment to go. Uh, for the oil and gas companies to go present to the Libyan oil and gas. So these guys, yeah. four companies, they're on six, seven-figure salaries, these guys, and they're representing their brands. And and every presentation failed. They didn't have their slides in the correct order. They weren't confident speaking in front of a crowd. And it's yeah. like, wow, they're the things we take for granted from the military because we have to give a set of orders. You know, We have to present in large numbers. And so it's just, yes, you may have a degree, but if you can't, interpret that or translate that then it's, it's no use so there are and that's what i sort of emphasize to those guys and girls that are leaving that you do have a particular set of skills away yeah. from the, the, the the military and the, you know the military sort of tactics um, yeah. that uh, will be really contributing you know we're we're thrown in scenarios where things don't go to plan you know the, the plan doesn't survive sure. first. yeah it doesn't survive first like what we do. <laughs> yeah whereas a lot of the corporate world they're like you know, if it doesn't go to plan, they just don't know what to do. And so, so yeah, they're the sort of things that I think that the, the, the veterans can really contribute to some of these businesses, being there, being reactive to situation changes, working under under pressure, having targets and objectives, because everything we do in the military is a mission, is a mission or an objective, everything that we do. And we will always make sure that we're successful on that mission objective, regardless of the path that we're taking. What happens? Yeah, man. Yeah. I love it, dude. And not to beat a dead horse, but I was just, I was thinking about this today, man. And I was like in the gym and I was hammering and I was yeah. like, you know, I was looking at, you know, the things that have allowed me to do more than some of my peers that have been smarter than me. Like they yeah. can look at numbers and spreadsheets. They can do so many things better than me, but like I've kind of gone farther in some ways. And I was like, what is the thing? It's like, well, I got this kind of fearless thing. And that's like, mm. Well, nothing's as bad as some of the stuff I had to do in the Marine Corps. Like I'm not cold and wet. I'm just not yeah. like, like, it's just not that bad. Yeah. Thing. I'm not cold and wet, you know? And I started thinking about this stuff and I'm like, you know, a lot of, I think what we really get the edge you get from a lot of that, like hardcore kind of trauma we get is emotional intelligence, man. It's so underrated. You can take a hundred people that are really smart. You can put them in the same room and what to, what makes a difference who goes and gets after it and applies and executes and continues to execute this emotional intelligence, I know we're dudes and we're like yeah. hard dudes and like we don't have emotions, but emotional intelligence, man, being able to yeah. be calloused and stay focused and prioritize and execute. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for the emotional intelligence we learn 
when yeah, you, I, I, yeah, know. I've heard I've heard that myself. You know, the emotional intelligence, but also being able to to communicate. You know, some guys, yeah. and it, and it's not and girls not their fault of their own. They've done a whole career in the military, but don't know how to communicate to civilians. You know, some of them come out and, and they're screaming <laughs> and shouting at these civilians, and it's like it's a different it's a different world, and so. So those sort of communication skills, people sort of lack. They don't know how to, to to address the uh, those that they're, they're they're talking to. So yeah, yeah, yeah man. That is when I recruit veterans into private security. That's one of the biggest sticking points. Is going to be communication and presentation. Like we're not there anymore. So yeah, yeah. can you like be a dude now? Like can you? Yeah, can yeah, you- yeah. You do, yeah. A professional, or can you be a, pro- a civilian professional now? You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Present, presentation. As you touched on, like you said, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're an extension of your client. You know, so I I would never be you know in in tight t-shirts and tattoos in front of the client. I, I had a client actually. We went to Greece for a week, yeah. and I was there in my 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 suit, my um my shirt, my trousers, and. Just ran the whole week. I mean, on the last day, we had a few hours before we were flying. They said, oh, we're going to go to the swimming pool. Do you want to come join us? And I said, okay. So I just came out of the gym and I had this old um, singlet on and, and and their faces were like, it's almost like they didn't realize I had tattoos. And it was like <laughs> interesting how you can sort of, you know, you yeah. know dress, up, dress up and dress down to the, to the situation that you're in. Yeah. It's got to be done. No, I love it, man. So just so you guys know, this is going to be an awesome episode. We're going to talk a little bit about a lot of things, maybe some Afghanistan evacuations, uh, maybe kidnapping, maybe some uh, Canadian uh, ambassador uh, embassy evacuation. We got some, he's done some amazing things. Two-time world champion. I can't wait. But I always love to start off with the same question. Who are you at your core, man? Who's the man behind the work that's been able to get all these things done? Who's, um, oh, you know, I always say, you know, I'm here now talking to you, but it, it's, it wouldn't be possible without the team around you. Um, you know, as you said, we, we, have, we have a vision and a passion, but, um, you know, in the special forces, there's a um, uh, statistic for every, every guy that steps off the aircraft, jumps out of the plane, dives on the boat, takes seven other people behind the scenes. So I'd love to take credit for everything. But for me, is having that support network around me. And the probably the closest support network is my wife. You know, my wife, when you get to know her and, and speak to her and read the book, it is, um, you know, she's she's the campaign director. When I left the military, we talked already about the transition. You know, I see you guys yeah. in Guild. Some of their transition can be quite smooth and come, some are quite turbulent. You tend to find those that are quite smooth are those that have a good, solid family base around them who, who, who follow them through that transition. And so for me... I'd gone from, you know, the age of 17 to 33 in the military. You know, you're, 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 the military, like your mother, your father, they clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time, you know, everything's dealt with. So your focus is the objective or your mission. Yep. So when, you, when you're leaving the military, I don't know who I need to speak to in the city or, or whoever or about housing or, or whatever that. You know, so thankfully for me, my wife was very entrepreneurial and she took that responsibility away so again, I still don't know who I bank with. Uh, yeah, I still don't know who provides heating for the house. You know, she does that. So, you know, she's obviously the one who's, who's the core but behind the scenes. And like I said, I genuinely believe that anyone can break two world records if you've got someone at home running the businesses, taking care of the kids, the family, the mortgages, and all I've got to do is ride a bike, then, yeah. then that's possible. So I, I have to give that shout out and that credit to, to my wife. 
Yeah. That's such an awesome answer. That's great. Well done. No, I love it, man. I um I I I uh have definitely, definitely really realized and leaned into the messaging around, you know, helping people realize that I'd say one metric of uh the value of your life, like one of the most important metrics I think a human yeah. should focus on is how much better they make other people's lives by the contributions they make with their life. And if you really want to have a large impact, mm. that ability to impact others is going to come from your ability to drive results through yeah. the people around you, which means building them up, creating generals, surrounding yourself with other juggernauts. And yeah, you mm. might be the face or you might be the neck or you might be the, the pinky, but like yeah. really learning how to get people you know, to, to get behind a mission is like mm. such a superpower. And it's awesome yeah. that you know that, man. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. But, um, but yeah, the... Says a lot about you though. It says a lot about you as, as a, a teammate, you know, as a leader, as someone worth like contributing to, you know, as someone who's worth her putting her life and her assets behind. So you can be that tip of the spear and she can be the javelin that, you know, gets you there and all that stuff. That says a lot about you guys, man. That's huge. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, no, as you touched on, oh, you know, what separates me from my peers who had, you know, probably more educated things. That. And, and for me, is like, I am, I'm not more educated. I just have a great support network um, who have the same. And it, there's no one better than your wife or a family member who's going to protect you and the family as well. You know, yeah. so they, you know, know so while you're out doing these things they're they're making sure everything's where it should be contracts are signed you know i and i still don't do contracts i don't do ndas my wife does all that i'm almost like i'm the the extrovert i'm the one that people like to socialize with and then my wife comes in behind me with a contract and (laughs) the knife yeah 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 yeah. okay no this is what he'll sign yeah yeah Yeah, exactly yeah even on the security stuff like when i when i left my wife was a a bank manager and we were actually going to go into the security industry when I left as, yeah. as a couple. Um, I, I sort of was going back slightly when I, when I had the parachute injury and realized that I was leaving, I, I sort of knew the security sector was probably the, the quickest and easiest, you know, yeah. um, footstep. And so I, I did a quick bit of research cause I didn't have long and I didn't want to go out to Afghanistan and Iraq again. You know, I've done number tours there before. Um, I didn't want to be on any six week rotations, um out in the desert with some of the oil and gas so i spoke to a friend of mine and he was the head of ep for control risk group at the time and and he was telling me actually and as you all know um in the security industry the risk reward ratio isn't balanced you could be out, you could be out, out in afghan and iraq you know under some extreme pressures rounds coming down your lives at risk or you could be doing the, the, the high-end corporate stuff in these five-star hotels, flying around the world, private jet, and actually be on more money. So I was like, well, okay. <laughs> So that's where I am. Um, so I decided I would do more of the corporate EP when I initially yep. got out. And my wife being my wife, she's like, well, I want to do it as well. So I then found out who, who was the best person in the industry at the time who can train on corporate close protection. And there's an old gentleman, ex uh, SAS guy back in Hereford called Jins really? Johnson. Yeah. Jins Johnson, his name is an old boy. And, and, and we went and did his course, me and me and Alana, you know, I'd already done the PS ones within the special forces, but you know, Jins, he sort of came in and it's such a humble guy, you know, 
interesting that we were we were out in Afghanistan and he was training the Mujahideen back in the seventies, you know, with the special forces, you know. So uh, yeah, so, <laughs> it's yeah, but you know, for him, it was all it was, it was the soft skills. It was all the other stuff behind the scenes stuff, which was great. So, so our sort of initial plan was me and Alana would do you know because there was a lack of females in the industry at the time, and we'd do corporate. And then, then Alana got pregnant with you know with with our, with our daughter Molly. So, um, so yeah. So when I was when I was leaving the gates, um, within forty eight hours, I got a phone call asking if I could help set up the. Um, uh, British Embassy in Benghazi. They had a, a project called Department for Institute Development. So this was May 2011, the height of the Arab Spring. So Gaddafi was now uh, surrounded in Tripoli, and everyone's in Benghazi. All the big security companies were coming in. I call them the Big Five. I never like to name in shame. They were all there, and they're just touting for work. The oil and gas were there. The NGOs, the media outlets, mm-hmm. and so my friend, my friend was like, "Look, I need, I need to fly in 30 EP guys next week. Can you go in?" get them accommodation, get everything sorted out. So I, I flew in literally my first task. I, I, I came in um, fresh on the military. The British embassy at one location, they said, you can come, come stay with us. But I wasn't comfortable with that because the if we were all co-located there, then it was one target. And for me, I'm thinking QRF, you know, if that position got hit. Yeah, yeah, the military, my military head sort of came on. So I said, no, we'll go to the... the um, the hotel in town, which had a swimming pool, and they all thought it was because of the swimming pool. It wasn't. It was because it was it was offside. Yeah, complicated things. For yeah, the complicated. But when when I, when I got there, I soon identified that the Libyans didn't want this being another Afghanistan and Iraq. Once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control of their own country, and we we had been given these MP7 uh, weapon systems from the UK law enforcement, and I made a decision straight away that we're not going to carry them. Because we didn't need them. There was actually no threat to us. So really, it's getting on the ground and understanding the atmospherics, you know, identifying whether there's threats or not. Um, but also that these other security companies were charging six, seven-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and selling them off. But when I actually started scraping the surface, I soon realized that actually there wasn't anything in place. It was about as good as the paper it was written on. But a lot of these corporates need to have that box ticking exercise. So the week week later, the the 30 guys all flew in straight straight out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, where's our weapons? And I know straight away I'm like, right, this isn't Afghanistan, Iraq. And I I really gave, I said, you know, this is Libya. We have weapons if we need them. We don't need them. And and gave them a full breakdown. And they they got it. They they were like, oh, right. I don't know what they thought they were coming into because obviously what was on the the news. So I I set up that project, came home, and my wife gave birth to our daughter. But I was sort of thinking on – for me, I was trying to find a niche within the industry. All my friends were now – doing maritime security off the east coast of Africa because it was at its height at this point. That's what time it was. Yeah, man. I remember those contracts being like, man, do I want to go overseas? (laughs) Doing all this Kush. I was working all the Kush stuff over here with clients, you know, private jets and all the comfy stuff. And I was like, man, I want to get after it. But I, you know. (laughs) No, it was good. It was was good at the time and the bottom's falling out of it now. But it's, it's, you know, at the time it was good. But I didn't want to, be competing with my friends you know I wanted to find a niche for Dean Stott and so I really fought on that crisis management thing and I said to my wife there was um you know I went back I said I've got an idea 
do you mind if I take the money out of our savings? And, you know, Alana is very, you know, very, you know, like I've always spoken highly of, her. you know, she, she's very open-minded, looks at opportunities, sees opportunities, doesn't sort of wait and think, oh, we missed that. She like, she sees it and said, yeah, go. So there was a huge proliferation of weapons at this point in Libya, you know, because the, 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 the war was still going on. So I went back in and I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and just designed my own evacuation plans, buried communications kits and money, um, and just had them located near safe houses and designed my own evacuation plans. I spent a month in the desert designing it. You know, we got access from the sea, we got access on the road, and you know, looked at all the op- options that were available, put it together nice and neatly, and then sold it to some of the oil and gas sector. And and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully never needed to, to use that. Use it. Uh, right. Yeah. But one of the things, another thing that I was lucky with with Alana is that she was she was happy that I was doing ad hoc work. So each time I got a phone call, it was a different task. It was a different country. It was a different situation. And so, you know, you know, maybe can you take the UAE Royal Family super yacht from Barcelona to Maldives? You know, the next phone call, London Olympics, you know, the next phone call, train the Kurdish special forces. So each one. I was actually learning a lot about corporate security in a short period of time and getting exposure to the different sort of different elements of the security industry. Because as you know, you know, people that look like you and I, when you tell people you're in security, I think they think you're a doorman from the local nightclub. It's actually, you know, you're a bouncer or they think mall <laughs> cop. And you're like, you know what? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You say bodyguard, they kind of start to get it. And you're like, yeah, but I don't want to, you know. Exactly. <laughs> But for her, but for like me, it was everything. It was from surveillance, it was crisis management, yeah, close protection, right. coaching or mentoring. It's such such a big industry, um, and so I was literally learning as much as I could. And I was learning about NDAs, contracts, and, and things like that. And uh, but really building a reputation with the industry within the industry. And I like to, in, depending on the threat, ideally work on my own. So I've been Yemen and Somalia on my own in, in places like that because for me it was like. The bigger the team, the bigger the sort of risk, the bigger the welfare. Um, you know, you don't, some of the guys you work with, you never worked with them before. So right. so for me, I had a smaller footprint. I stand out a bit. I had a smaller footprint, but I was able to get around a lot quicker and easier and, and get what I get what I needed. So yeah, I soon became the one that, you know, one to go to. Um, my wife says my USP was as we touched on before, I can talk to anyone around the world yeah yes i've got a bold head and blue eyes but you know i I remember a conversation i had in somalia with uh, one of the clients there and it's like you know they get emails all the time from security companies in london and 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 new york and things like that all offering the same services and they said but you've taken the time to come here sit down with us share bread share water and get a real feel for the atmosphere so that 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 meant a lot for them. So that's why I was getting a lot of business is actually going in on my own with no plan and just starting to speak to people and, you know, and sort of understanding, you know, what is the actual threats and what is it that actually media are pushing out? You know, so so down in Mogadishu, I used to go spearfishing yourself in Mogadishu and it's like, you know, it's beautiful waters. And you tell people that, like what? Um, But, you know, but they won't see that from, from what's on the news. So, yeah, so I, I was doing a lot, a lot of stuff in a short period of time. And then in 2012, I just finished the London Olympics. And I tended to find that every time I had a good job, something yeah. bad, not something bad, there'd be a bad scenario. And, and it, was, it was, it was quite common practice. So I just finished the London Olympics. 
great six weeks in London, all the games. Visa was the client, which was one of the main sponsors. You know, we talk about five-star hotels. Getting to the city sucked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it, it was a bit easier being being from the UK and then obviously being I'm one sure. of the main sponsors. But, you know, that was a great, you know, I always remember the games being great, you know, great for the UK. And then next thing, I'm, I'm in Benghazi the following week, you know, going on the recce. And it was uh, September 11th, 2012, when your American ambassador got killed. Yeah. Um, they made a movie called 13 Hours. So I was, I, I say right place, right time. It's right place, right time for me. Wrong place, wrong time normally for someone else if, if, I, if, my, if I have to show up. And so someone knew I was there and they asked if I could help a German oil company get their engineers back from um, Benghazi to Tripoli. Mm. So, so that's what I did. But, you know, Everything I do, I sort of, I, I look at the success of a lot of these things is understanding the demographics, the politics, the tribal influences within the country and having a real understanding of that. And that's been the sort of successes of my project. So, so really, you could get a vehicle from Benghazi to Tripoli in, in six, seven hours. Mm. But for me, what I, the issue I had is the drivers I had were from Benghazi and right. they would just bring too much heat and attention in Tripoli. Right. And so... That option wasn't available. So mm -hmm. I had a safe house down in Zella. So we moved out to the safe house in Zella. And yeah. one of my, some of my weapons were buried there. And we just sat there, you know, in this safe house. We, 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 we were safe. We were uh, monitoring the situation over the next uh, 24, 36 hours to see what was going to unravel from Benghazi. But unbeknown to my drivers in Benghazi, who, who were with us, yeah. I, ha I had drivers coming in from Tripoli because they would be... They would take us onwards. They would take us onwards. So yeah, the next morning yeah. I woke up and they'd arrived early in the night and there's arguing in the, in the courtyard and I oh, went out. They're, they're about like, to get into a firefight in the courtyard. Oh, yeah. The pistols were out and, and it's like, I said, and I sat down with him and I, you know, sat and I explained to him, I said, look, I said, would you, to the Benghazi guy, I said, would you be happy to go to Tripoli? And he said, no, but we'll do it. I said, yeah. I said, but I, their concern was they weren't going to get paid. I said, no. <laughs> So you, you're getting paid and paid a bonus because you've got us up until here. I said, but you will bring more heat and attention to us on that. So I sort of use that as an example as like, you know, some some of the security providers may just see, well, like we can get them there in seven hours, but then not realize, you know, them sort of tribal influences and, and things like that. So, so because of the success of that, Fast forward two years, I'm in Brazil now, the World Cup. <laughs> so, so I'm enjoying the soccer World Cup now and I'm sort of getting flashbacks to Brazil. And I was I was there and while I was in Brazil, what was unraveling in, in Libya was the Tripoli War, civil war between the militias and the governments. And all the embassies had gone. They'd shut shop apart from one, which was the Canadians. And so I get this phone call and um, this young girl was like, Dean, you know, your name keeps coming up. Not a security company, just your name. Yeah. And she explained the situation. So I, I flew back. I flew back in um, from Brazil via London and went to went to Libya. So they had eighteen military and four diplomats. Their so security detail were all reservists and and not they're not their fault at all. But they every four months they would rotate. Another another unit would come in and take over, but they, during that for the period there, they'd never left the city walls of Tripoli. Their sort of normal movements would be from Palm City, where the accommodation is, to um, the Tripoli Towers, where the office is. 
So the actual road from Tripoli to Tunis is only 100, 100 kilometers. It's not okay. far at all, but it's just they didn't have any visibility or, or eyes on. But also the um, week before the British embassy had got shot at every checkpoint on the way out. And the reason for that was, and I only found out later, is that they didn't stop at the checkpoints. They, they drove straight through. Well, so this sure was, it sounded like, and they got shot at it every checkpoint. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. By the time Chinese whispers, by the time they've gone back to Tripoli, it's like, you know, it's going to be World War Three. Yeah, so, yeah. so my team for this project was me, a 50-year-old internet shop owner from UK, who was actually from the tribes that we were going through. Okay. Spoke per- yeah, spoke perfect English, understood the Western sort of, you know, when I say timings, he understands Western timings and not inshallah, yeah. and it'll <laughs> happen in, in slow time. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100%. And, <laughs> and then two fish wagons, which I'll go on to slightly in a minute. So so myself and my fixer, we went out to, and we didn't speak to the checkpoints. We didn't speak to the guys with the guns because they're normally the younger guys, you know, and they're just being told. And we actually went and spoke to the tribal elders, sat down with them, you know, shared bread, coffee, and it was all about respect you know, showing them, showing them respect, uh, communication, letting them know we were no threat. Or yes, we we, um, you know, we gave them a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, whatever. But and 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 that's all it was. And it then realised that the Brits had just tried to drive through. They didn't know they were coming, so they weren't aware of that. So, and that's all it needed was just that that sort of communication. And yeah, I mean, we, you know, we then moved out the next morning. I was I was lead vehicle with my fixer. And I had communications with Chad, who's their, 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 their TL for the, for the military. And I would be at the next checkpoint, making sure there's no issues, just driving through and then just, just radioing through. And we got them all the way safely. So it sounds very sexy in Hollywood, but, you know, the weapons I've never needed to dig up. <laughs> They've always been there as a, as a backup scenario yeah. um, if we need it. Because, and all I've done there is I've just taken what I've learned in the special forces into the civilian sector because you know everyone sees on the Holly- Hollywood doesn't help matters <laughs> as you know you know they, everything worse they see the biceps the bullets and the bombs and 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 it's like yeah that's that's special forces you know that's that's twenty five percent of what we do that offensive action actually fifty percent of what we do is support and minds heart and you know supporting and influence hearts and minds being right. embedded with locals but that's not sexy on TV yeah. but that's that's what I sort of capitalized on this was that support and influence. Um, and so it was just more of an intelligence led security operation. And, yeah. and like I said, on paper, the perfect team for that would be six to eight guys like you and I. Yeah. But actually, when I made the assessment, it was just one, one fixer and two fish wagons because they had so much additional equipment. Um, I said, well, you need to keep the essential stuff in your, your vehicles, but the fish wagons, go to Tripoli to Tunis every day. So the, the borders are expecting them. So they didn't stop them. They just waved them straight through. So it was just really understanding understanding that. And so, yeah, that was uh, that was the Canadian embassy. Yeah, and the fish wagons were your co- like camouflage, basically. <laughs> yeah, like camouflage. They knew the drivers Perfect knew camo. the border guys and they just waved them through and didn't even stop them. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And that, you know, it, it's really a high-speed... And it's a sexy sounding mission, you know, but like yeah. that's private security. <laughs> you know, that's private yeah. security. You know, it's the social dynamics, getting with the house, respecting the house, respecting yeah. all your auxiliary teammates, respecting the nanny mafia and the, and the PA. Yeah. 
Respect and, everyone. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, man. And trying to make their job easy, making your job easy. They make your job easy. Yeah. And uh, getting the mission done, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. No, it, was, it was good. Yeah. And, and I, I came home from that trip and, and my normal SOP, my standard operational procedure would be to yeah. you know, launder my clothes, charge my phone and get ready for the next phone call. That's what it was. But um, my wife then identified that I'd only, you know, there was, there was, um, there was blood on one of my shirts. And the reason for that was when we got to the Tunis uh, border, there was, a, there was a road traffic collision. And so I was administering some first aid. You know, it wasn't as bad as it, it sounded. I just got blood on me. And, uh, and so my wife's like, you know, how, why have you got blood on your shirt? And I sort of explained what I'd just done. And it was almost like a, a throwaway comment that you just evacuated the embassy on your own. It's like, and, and so, and I mean, so we sat down at even a couple of bottles of wine and soon realized I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. I totally, I disconnected from society. What I thought was normal, wasn't normal for everyone else. Right. And so I was trying to match that adrenaline rush of being in the special forces without coming to terms with the fact that I'd left. And this is five years I haven't left the military camp. Yeah. And so something had to change, you know, chapter 16 in my book is called Dead or Divorced. And that's the, that's the conversation me and my wife are having at this stage. And it's like, yeah. You know, you can continue at this pace of life, but you will either be dead or divorced. And so, yeah. and so that was my wake up call, the pin drop that, um, you know, I took a sabbatical from the security institute for a couple of years um, from that point onwards. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that, man. I definitely, I think I experienced the same thing, but I dealt with it a lot uh, less constructively. <laughs> you know, like you know, I just went hard. I started making six figures when I was 21. Yeah. World hit hit 60 countries, like started making money and just started partying and was like ultra functional partier, like, because I was a Marine, I didn't need sleep anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I just went crazy. And then, yeah. but then I started to realize like, Hey bro, like, what are you doing, bro? Like, are you just trying to match kind of the, the, the dopamine? Like, are you trying to just keep it full tilt? Cause like the world's a cartoon now. Cause you're not in the military. Like you're like a Lamborghini stuck in a school zone for the rest of your life, you know? <laughs> and, and I was able to wake up, to that and then get real about um trying to make you know my real my waking life the war you know the, yeah. to perfect you know the war to perfect life the act of life really you know and, mm. and contribution um so it, it sounds kind of like you were kind of doing the same thing you're like woo like i can do it. <laughs> on it it's awesome that your wife was able to ground you what what do you think like helped you make that transition now that we're back on the veteran thing just briefly but like, did you feel, did you go through a dark time of just being bored? Did you just kind of rearrange your values and then kind of, it made sense to you? Did you drink and do a bunch of cocaine and hookers for a while? <laughs> no, I, I wish I had done all that, but I didn't do that. It was literally, it was just work after work. So when I, when I left, like I said, you've gone from being 100 miles an hour, you know, you're, you're at the top of your game and you're doing it, you know, you're living the dream. You know, what these young kids play nowadays are Call of Duty. It was my, like my lifestyle day in, day out. I was very fortunate. I joined the Special Forces at the height of the war and terror. It was the busiest time in UK Special Forces history. So I was doing operational jumps, dives, back-to-back -to -back tours. You know, I was literally ticking a lot of boxes. So it's gone from that to then stop. You know, yeah. I... Yeah, I, I can I, do this and not, yeah. not die, you know? Yeah, so I'll probably cover the the incident, actually, the injury, which stopped it. You yeah, know? Yeah. So I was going back out. Yeah, I was going back out on another tour to Afghanistan. We're doing pre-deployment training, and we're doing what is called a hey-ho jump. 
high altitude, high opening. So unlike Halo, which is skydive freefall, this one, you exit the aircraft at 15,000 feet. The, the parachute is still attached to um, the aircraft. As you exit the aircraft, you know, it gets taut, pulls it back, and then parachute opens straight away. And then at 15,000 feet, you can travel up to uh, 30 minutes or 50 kilometers to the target area. So it gives you that, that distance of flying. And so I'd done about three of these this day, you know, just a normal jump exited. But when I exited this time, a leg was caught in a line above my head. You did it three wasn't... of them one day? You said you did three of them this day or just three it's of them ever? No, no, the freedoms in there. We've done. Oh yeah, yeah before lunch. Yeah, yeah, cheerio. No big deal. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. It was just a routine jump, you know, just back out doing just because more, more consistent, more training to get the right. better you are. Yeah, and actually, I didn't need to be on that jump. We had a load of new lads just past selection, and so yeah. they needed to get hey ho trained, and so. Our sergeant major was like, we'll just go do some fun jumps already, or because we're already trained, but there's no right. such thing as a fun jump in the military. And so, um, no fun. so yeah, I exit the aircraft, my leg was caught in the line above my head. So I was trying to clear it in time before that parachute, before it pulled completely back and took my leg off, but I couldn't clear it. My leg got pulled over my head and to my right. And thankfully my ankle um, cleared from the line and my leg wasn't taken completely off. Otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. But yeah. the straight away, the pain, I'd never experienced pain like it. I was vomiting because of the, the pain. And at 15,000 feet, it's the, last, it's the highest you can jump before going on O2. And so the air was quite thin, and I was drifting in and out of consciousness. And, I'm, yeah. and, I'm, and I can see the rest of the guys in my stick. There's no point in coming on the radio and telling them I've got a sore leg because there's nothing they can do. And so I had to really assess the, uh, the, the approach and landing. I landed perfect. It was a one-legged landing. It was good, but... The damage sustained, you know, I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus and my knee, my hamstring, my calf and my quadriceps, all the supporting muscles as well. So the only thing you didn't do was lose yeah. your leg. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, lose, was lose my leg, yeah. And skin was just holding your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I obviously got to this period in my life through my sort of physical robustness, you know, that, that's something that got to me. So then when I left those camp gates, I'd lost that identity. The identity crisis of like, I couldn't even run 100 meters without my, my knee giving way. And so really, I, I, I felt like a part of me I'd, I'd lost uh, already. So, so obviously, when I then came out and, and Alana was eight months pregnant, I was so focused. It wasn't so much on the adrenaline rush. It was bringing the money in, you know, bringing the money in, which was, was good. Yeah, and then and then it was the adrenaline rush. It was each mission was like, and that's why you know people say when others won't, Dean would. It's like I would be going. I for me, I my perception on risk was probably a bit. Some people a lot more risk averse than what I was. It was just probably because I knew. I You're probably familiar. read. Oh yeah, and I read the read the read the uh, read the ground properly, and and I had good fixes. You know, it's all about having good fixes, people you can trust in the country. Right. So right, it wasn't right. because I was taking any more risk. I just had. Uh, more more ground connectivity um but yeah I, I when i came back from the canadian embassy in alana and soon realized there's actually communication between me and alana i didn't need to be going away she had a very successful property development business you know i didn't need to be doing that and so something had to change but you know you can imagine when my backstory sat in these architects and planners meetings i was like oh my god you know i wasn't interested at all so yeah, as you said, to keep those dopamines go going and, and, and mm -hmm. keep that adrenaline going, I needed to do something. And that's when yeah. my wife my wife looked at me and she said, You need to fucking do something. And I'm I'm not see I say I'm not I'm not saying go uh, I'm not saying smuggle people across borders, but you know, need to do something to keep yourself physically and mentally engaged. And I think all of us need to do that. And that 
that's when we came up with the bike ride. It had to have been. It had to have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Like, okay, fine. Like, uh, I'm going to yeah. just superpowers, break two world records. That should yeah. calm me down a little bit. Get yeah. me in the family mode. <laughs> I <Yeah>. love it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, but so road to recovery, like there had to have been some pretty serious psychological milestones. Like when you were, when you broke uh, mm. after that jump, you know, that's, that's a death of an identity. Um, yeah. Was that you kept on your mind to get you through that rehab or was it just kind of like, well, we're not gonna let this kill us. So we're going to keep handling yeah. any like jewels mm. listening that are going through something like that. I think, I think the, the initial one, you know, I, I was in a dark place. Um, I think the initial one, looking back now on reflection, you know, is at least I'm here to tell the story. I've got a lot of friends who aren't here to tell the story, you know, that their kids are orphans and their wives are widows. And so, so very fortunate in, in that aspect, you know, and I probably wouldn't be here telling this story if I was still in and didn't have the injuries. It's what happens and what life throws at you and, and how you sort of deal with it. Um, but, you know, I talked about the injury. That was just the start of it. You know, there was a whole spiral of errors in the military. They lost my medical documents. You know, I was supposed to, my MRI scans, I was supposed to get rehab straight away. It took me 44 weeks to get operated on. And, uh, and so I, I literally, and because I, I was about to sue the military, I was like, you need to operate on me because I need to now start working. Um, and so I missed all that rehab. You know, they, there was a spiral of errors and it didn't stop there. You know, I, I wasn't paid out on the right pension. It took me five years. Then I won a tribunal hearing in the end. So, yeah. you know, as well as all this more. going on. It's yeah, a whole more, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're dealing with all of that. And I didn't realize how important it was to me until I actually won the tribunal hearing five years later. And because I felt like my, I'd been reciprocated for my time and my flesh and everything I put into it rather than just kicked out the door and so yeah so there's a lot of things going on there's a lot of things going on and it shouldn't be like that and that's and that's one of the areas we have in the in the uk military and i think it's also the same here you guys have very similar similar sort of situations as well mm. so for me was thankful that you know um i'm still alive yes i can't run anymore but what can i do okay so that avenue's blocked off but what are the other avenues that we could focus on so with the yeah. with the bike ride um that period when Alana asked me to do property development, I just, just, my injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of muscle wastage. It'd been about five years. So while I was doing all the security stuff, I, I had a TRX that I'd take away with me, but I wasn't doing any sort of cardiovascular stuff. And right. so I just bought a push bike off Amazon, just cycled eight miles there, eight miles back. Um, not big mileage, but just be, getting the lungs going, doing that cardiovascular. I felt like, I was pulling some of that identity back. You know what I mean? I couldn't run. And so when Alana said, look, you need to do something, I always I always recall reading a book as a young child. It was called The Guinness Book of Records. Yeah. And, you know, just fascinated, all these these amazing achievements that people did. And uh, mm-hmm. it was about, it was, I was a month before my 40th birthday. And so I was having a midlife crisis. Like, what am I going to do? You know, I need to leave a, leg, need to leave a legacy or, or something like that. And so... I said, well, I was, yeah, I said, I fancy doing a world record. And she said, what in? And I said, well, cycling seems good, you know, because it doesn't, it's not hurting my knee. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'd only, I'd only cycled 20 miles as the maximum before I applied for the world record. My wife, my wife then found the world's longest road, which from, from southern Argentina to northern Alaska. It's 14,000 miles or 22,000 kilometers. So I was like, ah, 
perfect. You know, that, that's the yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for, for me, it's like, you know, I, I wasn't a cyclist, but I, I had a lot of experience time in the military in the private security sector. And I always say you can't be experienced without experiences. And yeah. so all I needed to do was take those experiences and just put it into a new discipline. I knew I had the mindset. I knew I had the planning capabilities. Yeah, and just just put it into that. And so, yeah, you know, it sounds, sounds arrogant, you know, maybe for some of the cyclists that this guy is 40 years old. He's only cycled 20 miles. And he's just applied to break the world record for the world's longest road. <clears throat> and so, yeah, Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful in your application. So Alana and I... Also, during this period of leaving the military, although I was going through my own issues with the military itself, I always was doing a lot in the philanthropic angle, especially in, in the military sector. And as we've just touched on now, now working with the Honor Foundation. Right. So I was an ambassador for the Special Boat Service Association, the Royal British Legion back in UK. And so we had the challenge and I now needed to find the sort of campaign message, uh, what we would do it for. Yeah. So as you touched on on your opening brief, like Prince Harry and I are good friends of 15 years. Him and I met... Wow, 2007 on a JTAC course together. And we've just been friends ever, ever since. You know, he's been to some of the charity events that I run. I, I, I sort of help him on some of his stuff behind the scenes. But this was the first time we were going to come out together in public. So I rang him up and, I, you know, you know, one of the stuff I was doing from in, uh, I had an intelligence fusion cell based in Mozambique and Tanzania. And I identified the smuggling routes from the ivory from Africa to the Far East. And so every few months, him and I would sit down and I'd disseminate that information to him. So I rang him up. I said, look, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road. What campaign should we do it for? And he was just about to launch a campaign with his brother and Kate. This is 2017 when I called him, um, called Heads Together, which was a campaign umbrella on mental health. And so I wasn't really aware too much about mental health. Seen, seen it firsthand with some of my friends, but not aware how big it was throughout the whole of society. You know, young children, teenagers veterans postnatal depression you know it covers the, the the full spectrum no one it doesn't discriminate mental health it affects everyone and so everyone gets so I said, perfect yes yeah, so i said perfect let's do that one so i set a target of a million pounds for heads together i mean I, I was asked you know what is the message you're trying to promote and so for me i just looked internally and i said well physical activity helps your mental state and that was the message i tried promoting on this on this challenge i, I was met with uh, resistance at first saying it's not been scientifically proven this is back in 2017 but now it's very much recognized as one of the coping mechanisms so yeah so i now, I now right. that's how most of us cope that's what keeps us not from killing ourselves you know what i mean like exactly. the, my iron my iron breakfast you know exactly. so i could be pg and pc for everybody the rest of the day okay yeah and it was something that was easy to me i could actually relate to that you know you know uh, thankfully for me i haven't had to take any pharmaceuticals or speak to anyone but that's probably because I've just kept, you know, but I did see myself deteriorate after my injury. It did affect my mental health. So, so it was easy. It was easy message. So that was the challenge. And that was the, uh, the campaign that we, we, we worked on. I and mean, yeah, I, I had a year to train um, and I'd start doing all the research, you know, sort of, I just took a military set of orders, put it on here and just crossed out ammunition. Um, but soon, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, soon started to learn how to ride, reached out to previous record holders, got as much information from them as I could to help me with my planning, which was really, really nice to see. And you know, I thought they'd be quite, keep it close to their chest, but they were very open in, in, in sharing that. And actually they all started in Alaska and finished in Argentina. So for, for me, 
being a military guy, was like, well, why take an issue? Uh, yeah, yeah. sorry, started in Alaska, finished in Argentina, but all the issues were in South and Central America, bit languages, bureaucracy at the borders, spares at the bikes. So for me, uh, you I heard the phrase, eat the frog. I'm like, well, why don't I start at the bottom, get the, eat the frog, get the issues out of the way early, and then when we're in North America, so that's what I did. I, you know, one of the things I was proud of, just because everyone went from North to South didn't mean it was the right decision. And I, I went the other way. It wasn't because it was going uphill. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to do it all the way uphill. The whole <laughs> to make it even harder. Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. Dude, that's amazing. And you ended up breaking two world records. What were they? Yeah, so it was the fastest to cycle South America. I took, you know, I took 10 days off the South America world record. And, yeah. um, you know, a lot of people messaged me and they're like, oh, well, that's it, the pressure's off. And I said, no, that was that was just a, a tick off. You know, I, I was breaking it all down into manageable bite sizes, you know, countries, days, four rides a day, um, yeah. rather than looking at the whole challenge itself. Because, you know, the, the enormity would just overwhelm you. But I got into... I got into Del Rio uh, on and, and into Texas on day seventy, and I was yeah. fourteen. I was fourteen days ahead of the world record, so I was like, "Perfect, you know, I can take a day's rest here or there." But yeah. Alana, as we all know, Alana's running the campaign. She's doing everything behind the scenes, um, and so she uh, she she rang me and and five times. So. Normally, she keeps all those distractions away from me. So my initial thought was there's something wrong with the children because she wouldn't ring that often. So yeah. I jumped off the bike, got a signal, and rang her back. And she said, you know, what would you wear to a royal wedding? I said, sorry. She goes, what do you wear to a royal wedding? And I said, I, I don't understand. She goes, oh, we've just been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. She, I said, that's nice. And yeah. she, goes, no. she goes, no, you don't understand. She goes, for you to be f- back in time, the last flight out of Prudhoe Bay in Alaska is day 102. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. Ten minutes later, I'm now a day behind the world record. Uh, not the world record, d- behind my new objective. New, yeah. so everything I've done up until now... Is it was kind of, great, but... Yeah, it was great, but you now need to go faster. So I got to Lubbock in Texas. Yeah. And we had 24... Um, I had 60-mile-an-hour uh, winds and tornadoes, so I was now grounded for another 24 hours. I'm now two days behind target. So... I was just doing a lot of planning. There's a there's an app called Windy TV, which gives you the strength and directions of the winds every hour for the next two weeks. Wow. And for me to get out of Lubbock, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss it. And so I just played chess with Mother Nature. Majority of my cycling done in the evening. And strange enough, from a security perspective, you know, we fought all the issues in South and Central America, and we never had any issues. The vehicle, one of our support vehicles got broken into in Colorado Springs. So of the whole journey, it was actually in the U.S. that we yeah, uh, did tap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Locals want to tap you in the U.S., man. That's exactly, awesome. Exactly, yeah. So, um, but I, I had 17 days planned for North America. I did it in 11 and a half days. Got to Cheyenne, picked up a beautiful tailwind. I cycled 270 miles in 11 hours. So I gained that time up. I now was... The wheel record was smashed, and I was I was looking like I was going to go to this wedding. I then get a I was at a town called Whitehorse, uh, about a week outside from Prudhoe Bay, and I, I get a, a message from a friend uh, while I was sat in McDonald's, just eating as much as I could, and he, he said he said look this. There's this professional cyclist who's got three other world records, sponsored by Red Bull, all the big brands. You know, he's come out on social media that day and announced that he's going to be the first man to do it in under 100 days in August. So I was like, oh. So every time 
I felt like I hit my objective. My objective kept moving. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I wasn't happy. I wasn't, I was, I was happy, but I wasn't happy just to sort of rest on my laurels and just, just steadily come in. So I cycled for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 through the snow and the blizzards to come in in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. So it wasn't the original plan, but the sort of success of that project was, and I always talk about importance of having a plan, was being reactive to the situation changes as as it was coming, you know, and that just came from, you know, I've never done this bike ride before, but I just sort of related it to stuff that I'd done in, in the past. And, and just, yeah, just you can't control the uncontrollables. There's nothing you can do. And so, yeah, that, that was the success of it. Yeah, man. Dude, that's amazing. And it kind of goes full circle to that military being able to adjust with the pieces on the board as they show up. And yeah. The flow with that is huge, man. I love it. Yeah. Uh, but good intel driven mission as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know? exactly. yeah. What do you, as we wrap this up, just a few more bangers questions real quick. What are you doing in the private security? Are you still consulting or, or are you still doing things or what's your role now? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I am. I, I was on a call the other day with one of the heads of station in one of the uh, Middle Eastern countries. And he's like, I've just Googled you. And I said, look, I said, there's two Dean Stotts. There's the one. <laughs> You're like, the one that the, yeah, yeah. There's the one that the world sees. There's the the cyclist, the author, the guy who's doing TV podcasts and things like that. But then there's also the Dean Stott who who's still very much in the shadows. Is is is, is coordinating a lot of um, crisis management stuff. Um, you know, I I won't be the person physically going out taking people out of countries, but. I still have a, a as, as you know, it's all about your network. So I have a great network of guys who are happy to stay under the radar, especially those that are transitioning as well, getting out and giving them their first one or two jobs just to take that pressure off them uh, as well. So still very much doing that. You know, Afghanistan last year, because of the Canadian embassy, the amount of phone calls I got, so I got involved with that. That was a very much a different scenario from um, from Canadian embassy because it wasn't physically going in. That was all about phone calls and, and so, yeah. yeah so and and obviously now look, i'm looking towards taiwan and things like that so what i've sort of learned over the years is and where i sort of specialize is is that crisis management evacuation plans um you know um afghanistan i use an example that that was obviously huge because it was on the world stage but that yeah. happens all the time where people say they have something in place and they don't have place insurance companies call force majeure and, and things like that so I normally get a phone call when they need assistance or they've already been let down by their security provider. But what I'm really trying to push now to some of these people is that actually if to be proactive rather than reactive, rather than waiting for the scenario to happen, you know, if, if you're proactive, it's actually 10% of the cost of what it is for me to then ramp up the reactive uh, team. But a lot of these security companies, and, and they do, some of them have plans, but the insurance company as well, you know, they are only responsible for getting the aircraft on the ground no one's responsible from getting them from a to b so where we specialize in uh, me and my guys is the first mile it's getting you from a to b it's pressure testing it's stress testing your your evacuation plan and, and your and your crisis so so still very much doing a lot of that advising with some of the ultra high net worths and the family offices as well and sort of like say you know the meet the media is great you know it's nice but it doesn't pay well and it has a shelf life i love security i love problem solving and i love obviously being able to put um 
food and water on, on some of my friends' uh, tables as well, you know, especially during that transition period until they find their own feet. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. No, that's awesome. Creating that for everyone else is amazing. Your niche is amazing. Uh, I was in and out of a lot of that Afghanistan stuff and yeah. get to just the failure points, the, yeah, man, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Okay, bro. Uh, here's the buyer. Here's, here's the yeah. ask. You need to get it done. Oh, you can't do it. You know, like, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of people yeah. things, you know, and had to shake a lot of trees. I wish we were talking then. I should have gave you a call. It was nice to see, you know, I've got to be careful. I say it was nice to see humanity yeah. wanting to come together and, and help. Um, but it got crowded with those that actually knew what they were doing and those that did, you know, that didn't. And if I, I think I had 47 WhatsApp groups, everything from the British Boxing Association telling me the boxing team were at risk when they weren't at risk mm-hmm. to, you know, the Housewives of Orange County raised like $2 million or something and they want to get people out. But but what you had here was, it was, there, was there was desperation and there was people doing things wrong and actually... You know, the FBI now investigating a lot of human trafficking. So a lot of these have all dropped off. So we were, you know, we didn't, I couldn't say yes to everyone. And that was the hardest thing for me. You know, I, I couldn't say yes to everyone. But we had to make sure that the documentation was right. They had a host nation and things like that. Because when this audit trail comes back, we'd done everything above board. And that's, you know, that, unfortunately, that was what was happening with others is they they were... And other people were financially gaining on the back end of other people's crisis, you know. Canadian Embassy, 18 military, four diplomats. I charged $7,000. <laughs> My man. That was it. But because because for me, and that was covered the fish wagons, my fixer, and I took nothing of it. But because yeah. I, couldn't, I, I couldn't be seen to be financed. Don't get me wrong, with the Afghan and other things, you need to make a business yeah but from, from that i didn't want to financially gain on other people you know the importance to me was to get them home but i'm now seeing the the repercussions of that i'm now seeing the benefits of of, of that evacuation and so yeah. yeah and i think also we were limited on time restraints anything above um twenty thousand had to get signed off from other authorities and they needed to move then i said well i'm not charged i'll charge you seven and that, that's it it's my baseline and so you're in and out <laughs> and you're in and out how long did it take you to start to finish i was it was about a week from by the time i came in you know met, did the planning sort of spoke hey spoke to them and did the recce's uh spoke to the tribal elders about a week it's interesting on the on the finance one actually you know a lot of a lot of stuff we're doing now, and I always call them the big five and things like that, is that we we end up doing the work for them, but they then mark it up to their clients. And because they have overheads, they have staff, they have things like that. So, so I'm more of a disruptor that I just take that middle layer out, still provide the service, but for the client, they still get, you know, still getting the same product, uh, but a fraction of the price, yeah. Yeah, man, that's good for people to know. That's good. Yeah. Because there was a lot of profiteering going on and all kinds of weirdness. There were good things happening, but of course, yeah, school. And 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 the thing, and, and that's the thing. You know, there's some great guys and girls out there, and there's those yeah. that sort of see that situation, try and monetize from it. And for me, that's I I wouldn't I wouldn't be comfortable. Don't get me wrong. I understand businesses need to function. So, but there's a time and a time and a place. Hundred percent, man. Hundred percent. So your book. Yes. Let's talk about it a little bit. 
<laughs> yeah, I forgot about it. But yeah, so when I when I did the bike ride, I finished that, and I didn't I didn't really look beyond the bike ride. I didn't see a career in guest speaking, TV, uh, you know, or or the media. I I, I did it. So I wasn't smuggling people across borders, and so um and so yeah, I got the opportunity to to write a book, and you know, it's um it's it's a great book. It's almost like three stories in one. It's my childhood in the military. Um, the private security sector, and we've only touched on a couple. There's some great stories in there with me yeah. with Prime Libya, ranking like, up uh, 100, yeah, 150. Chapter, like two chapters of your life could be a movie. Done. Like just two <laughs> chapters, like the, yeah, the, yeah. the bicycling and getting out of the military. That's not even yeah. the military, however many deployments you did. Like all of that yeah. could just be right there. So yeah, man, it's, it's interesting. Awesome. A lot, of, yeah, a lot of people say unless you didn't realize it was. It was true. You'd think it was fiction. How it just sort of like goes from one. I mean, I mean, the bike ride is the third area. But the book got the book originally got released actually in the UK in September nineteen, and me and my family moved over in October twenty, right in the middle of COVID. While the world was paused, we just saw an opportunity. Hey, just, just yeah, we always wanted to move to America. You know, we loved we loved the mindset over here, the, the, the get go attitude. You know, I'd done a lot of work with the U.S. Special Forces. My wife had done a few road trips, but we just got distracted with life. You know, we had yeah. the two kids and the businesses, and and we just before we blinked, you no, know, my daughter was nine and my son was four, and they said, well, well, let's look at the, the U.S. I mean, COVID then hit, so it gave us that opportunity. So, you know, we we just we just boxed up. Uh, we couldn't fly into the U.S. We went to Mexico City for fourteen days. And then my wife just come over with the no yeah, just, with the no eight, wall. Eight, just walk. Yeah. Eight, anyway. eight bags, eight bags, uh, two kids and a wife. Uh, no real plan. And, and my wife's on Zillow, and the school ratings were good in Orange County, so that's why we landed in Orange County. And and so when we got here, I mean, we just branched out from there. You know, the visas are all being sorted now, and the, yeah. now we're enjoying life. We're running so, into each other at the pumpkin patch. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, and very much probably probably one of the only families that really en- enjoyed COVID because we, we just did a whole whole change in life, a whole change, yeah. Wow. But the the uh, you know I, I when I got here, but you know because of the relationship with Harry, I always you know it's, it's one of the ones I have my own story, I have a great story, but I'm always known as Prince Harry's special forces friend, you know. And there's worse things to be called, but yeah. the. People magazine wanted to do a four-page special on me. I mean, as you touched on, I was I was going on Jocko's podcast. So these are like big, high-profile uh, media stuff. And so yeah. I reached out to my my publisher and I said, "Look, I'm going on this guy's podcast. You know, I've got People magazine, and they weren't interested because your book's been out over a year. And they're already looking at the other books, which is fine." So Jocko got me to number one on Kindle because there was no books available. So my wife, being the entrepreneur, you know, reached out to our publishers and said, well, you haven't launched in the US or North America yet. And she said, don't. She said, we will buy the rights from you and do it ourselves. So we bought the rights from them. And we we totally redesigned the book cover. The book cover in the UK is like my dark face, couple of frogmen. And we sort of looked at what worked with that book and what didn't work, you know, because you didn't actually realize there was a, a cycling world record in there. There's no no picture. I mean, the American, you know, 5'11, as you know, you work with 5'11, they've helped me redesign this. And it's all about light and hope. And so you probably wouldn't get away with that image on the shelves in UK with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holding a mod deuce or something like that. Yeah, FN Minimi with ammunition wrapped around my neck and a baseball cap back to front, you know, pretty much quite a disturbing picture, but summarizes my time in the military, sort of laughing. And so, we, yeah, we Americanized the book. We, you know, we changed the grammar. We added a couple more uh, chapters in there. But the in the UK, it was endorsed by some great names like Bear Grylls, Serrano Fines, Levison Wood, but US 
people wouldn't really know it is. So Jocko Willink, Admiral McRaven and Bear Grylls. And so, yeah, really just give it a, a lick, fresh lick of paint, as they say, and it's its first launch in the U- U.S. That's awesome, man. I love your guys' like isms, you know? You guys have those awesome <laughs> English is awesome, man. I know, that's yeah. what's up, man. No, that's cool. That is that you republished it, hammered the charts. Um, and like I said, it's like one of them. This podcast has been so easy. I literally have just been sitting here like, like going on this whole journey with you, man. Just following, uh-huh. learning from you. Um, yeah, brother. Uh, as I start to wrap it up, man, our exit questions, if you guys, obviously, if you haven't, I don't have to say this, but obviously you guys got to get the book, <laughs> you know, but yeah. he's, the most, he's interesting, man. It's a lifelong warrior's journey. Um, you've done a lot of high level things, man, in a lot of areas. I'm honored to be able to call you a friend, man. So oh, no, likewise, super cool. Uh, what would you say, uh, is one habit people can, should look at that would help them be better, a better person or a better protector? Um, a better person, better protector. Um, yeah, just stuff. Go, as, a, as a better protector, be able to sort of step back. Don't, don't never rush in, always step back uh, and quickly make a quick assessment. And, and it's actually really interesting because the book, the prologue, um sort of cap, uh, talks about that as well how i misread a situation which really got nearly I know, turned into, yeah turned into a disaster where it actually if i'd sort of stepped back read the room or read the situation it would have been a different outcome luckily it wasn't as bad as it was so i would say that and then my sort of personal one to people as well whether it's insecurity or just in life is um and i used to use it with my recruits that anticipation is worse than participation a lot of people will overthink things, you know, whether they're doing a challenge, whether they're doing security, whether they're doing whatever in life, and they will they will overthink it and tell themselves why they can't do it. But then when they're actually, you know, brave enough and then do do it, they look back on reflection and say, actually, that wasn't that bad. Um, yeah, so anticipation is worse than participation in my, my one for anyone. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask favorite quote, favorite mantra next. Uh, my favorite quote, uh, and I've actually got it tattooed on my on my back, is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Outstanding. Yeah, that's, that's a good 100%, man. Don't forget that, y'all. Don't forget that, man. That's what this world's all about. The, the strongest side does dominate. So, you know, we you've seen it all over the world. There are people right now being victimized, and it's because yeah. good's just not able to do anything about it, you know? Yeah. A bad guy with a gun, that active shooter is going to dominate until a good human shows up who's formidable. And so, that, and, and and as you say, that's just a small, that's a small minority percentage that the media yeah. like to focus on. You know, I've, I've talked about some great, some of my projects for you around the world. You know, none of them, none of them would be successful if it wasn't for the local community and the local support. You know, everyone's quite quick to tarnish a certain community because a, a certain bad group. Yeah. But you know, in Libya, you know, the safe houses, they're run by locals, you know, they were moving as, you know, it's, it's that group that people don't see. And there is so much more good in the world than bad. And yeah. people need to remember that, yeah. Dude, I was trying to market for an event and I was typing in, I was like, I was like, cause you know, it's like the world is a dangerous place. Like, you know, I'm getting my whole marketing thing yeah. and I'm like looking at FBI crime statistics and it was like the world was like it was like a violent crime happened 
it was like the world was way more dangerous during the 80s. <laughs> it's actually gotten safer and safer and safer. Yeah. COVID time and started getting weird again. But like mm-hmm. leading up to there, I was like, dang, the world's yeah. actually gotten safer and safer. There's so much good that mm-hmm. happens. It just doesn't get eyeballs on the news or social media. So yeah. as a different response in your brain, you're not going to pay as close attention to it. it makes people less money that are behind all the machines. <laughs> you know, right. so and it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting to talk. You know, you and I sort of showcasing, you know, the, the good that that is out there. But yeah, it's right. It's clickbait. It doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. Hundred yeah, percent. So, um, yeah. And then ultimately, brother, what what's it all for? How would you like to be remembered? You know. Wow. You know this. Is uh, kind of, so it's a hard one. Yeah, this is a hard one. Um, I, I definitely yeah. don't want to be remembered as a cyclist because I'm not a cyclist. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know, my wife didn't marry me because I look like Lance Armstrong. So, so that's that's one thing on there. I, I I think for me, I like to remember as someone that inspires others to chase their dreams and, and their goals. You know, my father told me I'd last two minutes in the military. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? That. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and, and then there's been so many periods in my life where you have been met with not resistance, but people saying that you can't do it. And and for me, there's no point in arguing with those people, you know, because you, you can argue them as much as you want. You're not going to change their mind. The only way you can change their mind is action. And so that's all I do is I go prove it through action. Yeah. And then, you know, mic drop and walk off. <laughs> so, and then have them and let them look themselves in the mirror with their limitations after that. And hopefully. And, and, it, and it is, I tend to find it's those that sort of criticize is those who know that they probably couldn't do it. And they, they give you, you know, full credit and, and admit that. And then there's those who, who are able to achieve it. And they, um, those who can do it and have done it. It's those who may be able to do it, who are not willing. They're the ones when I say anticipation is worse than participation. They're not taking that first step, but they will criticize and, be more upset because you did and they didn't. Yep, because they know deep down inside they probably could, but they ain't willing to probably do it. Could have, yeah. Didn't take the risk. <laughs> As the SAS say, who dares wins? Yeah, man, I love I love that saying. It's, it's, it's good stuff, man. Well, awesome. ours is ours is by strength and guile in the SBS. By strength and what? Guile, which means brain. By strength yeah. and brain. Yeah, I love it, man. That's good stuff. Awesome, brother. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, man. Thanks so much for making this happen. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being who you are, man. That's a, that's an imprint on this world that, you know, only you, that you've really done that only you can do, man. And I think there's a lot of like, our world needs good, strong, humble, competent men and humans, but also dudes need guys like you to look up to, man. And I, I really, it's an honor to be able to crystallize canonize a lot of the stuff you've done point people in a good direction and be connected brother so much love and respect thank you thank you so much appreciate it yeah brother 100 all right cool where whoa, whoa, where can people find you before we let you go man i'm not going to give out my home address because that's not a secu- good security uh yeah yeah <laughs> My website is uh, Um I am on social media, um, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, at Dean Stott or at Dean Stott SBS. Too easy, brother. Awesome, yeah. man. Well, we will talk soon. It's an honor and a privilege, brother. Later. Thank you so much. Cheers, buddy. This is my MCK. There are many like it, but this one is mine. If you've got a firearm sitting around, a pistol that you are not doing anything with, get an MCK. They make them for every single model. If you want a micro conversion kit 
that will turn your handgun into a force multiplier, get one, man. They are ultra affordable. CAA MCK micro conversion kits are the changing the game, y'all. So if you don't have one, you need to get one. Get one, your women, children, people that are less physically potent will be able to fire your firearm to farther distances with more accuracy. You will be able to fire your firearm to farther distances with more accuracy. I wanna get one of these into the hands of 100,000 more protectors this year because ultimately we are only as good as the things, the nation is only as good as its protection. Your home is only as safe and as good as your ability to protect it. MCK, go get one, drop your handgun in, take it to the next level, out, boom. Boom, yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I wanna encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. Uh, you'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, that helps, that helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast, out.